0: This conversation on COVID-19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg and welcome to episode 35 of Inside COVID-19. A bumper edition with good news as the first human coronavirus vaccine delivers promising results. Our treatments are being uncovered at a rapid clip. We'll hear from Democratic Alliance leader John Steenhuisen, who will explain why South Africa's official opposition political party is going to court to stop what it calls lockdown irrationality. We'll also hear from the University of Cape Town professor, whose research shows the cigarette ban has been a disaster why South Africa's 7,000 sit-down restaurants and the 1 million people that they support face impossible odds, and as the lockdown starts to ease here in South Africa, nations around the world are fretting about a possible second wave of infections. Inside COVID-19, Thumpers News. South Africa's curve-flattening days appear to be over, at least for the time being, with confirmed infections starting to rise at a rapid rate. There were 1,160 new cases reported on Sunday that takes the total in the country to 15,500. However, of those, 8,245 are active, the rest having recovered. There were three more deaths on Sunday, putting the total there at 264. Globally, total confirmed cases are now close to 5 million and deaths, 320,000. While the United States remains the hardest hit nation with over 90,000 deaths, Brazil's numbers are rising rapidly. 252 deaths today take the Brazilian total to 16,370. That's the sixth highest mortalities behind America, the UK, Italy, France and Spain. Russia now has the second highest number of infections at 290,000 behind the US's 1.5 million Brazil at 244,000 is fourth after the UK at 247,000. On the upside, with the exception of Brazil, all the other countries where mortalities have been highest are now displaying significant declines from their peaks. The US from 6,000 new daily infections to 675. The UK from a peak of 8,750 a day to 3,400. Italy is off from 6,500 to 675 and Spain from its peak of 9,600 daily infections to 515. South African controlled luxury goods multinational Richmond reported a 19% reverse in sales during the three months to end March, a direct result of coronavirus related lockdowns in mainland China and Hong Kong during the first quarter of the year. The group said business has picked up in recent weeks after its 460 stores in China reopened. Richemont's business was hit by the higher gold price, which made it more expensive to produce its expensive watches and jewellery, and its online business, Porter, was hurt by increased e-commerce competition. Richemont chairman, Johan Rupert, said the pandemic will cause a reset for the global economy, rather than just the pause some were hoping for. In line with this, Richmond cut its dividend by half to conserve cash. That's a significant development considering the group did not reduce its payout during the 2008 global financial crisis. In related company news, South Africa's leading life assurer Old Mutual, which celebrates its 175th anniversary this year, will break new ground when, as a result of the lockdown, It hosts the first digital annual general meeting of any JSE-listed company, and that will happen on May 29th. The group is also planning to create Africa's biggest digital classroom to help the continent address the challenge of access to education. Moderna, a NASDAQ-listed biotech company, today announced positive data from the human testing of its novel coronavirus vaccine by the U.S.'s National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. In March, eight people received two doses each of the first vaccine to be tested in humans. They all stimulated an immune response against COVID-19, making antibodies that were able to stop the virus from replicating. That's the key requirement for an effective vaccine. The company also said preclinical results of a study in mice was successful the vaccine preventing viral replication of COVID-19 in the lungs of the animals. Moderna says it will accelerate testing with the next phase to involve 600 people. There is currently no vaccine against the coronavirus. U.S. share prices rallied sharply on the news of Moderna's vaccine, gaining around 3% and wiping out last week's losses, which were the worst in two months. The oil price jumped almost 10%. And locally, that helped push JSE-listed Sassel up 8 rand a share to its best level since early March. Lots more on the vaccine story coming up in this episode. Inside COVID-19, Trumpers News. Well, there was a big move in the United States stock markets today and a huge jump in the oil price. And it's all to do with a company called Moderna which has done the first clinical trials of a vaccine for the coronavirus and appears to be successful. Well, appears is what us amateurs think about. Dr. Nolu Tandu who is the head of clinical policy unit at Discovery, joins us now to give us some more insight into all of this. Nalu, on the face of it and the way that the investment markets have reacted, this looks like a huge breakthrough from Moderna.
1: Thank you Alec. I think at this point we are all looking for some positive news around the vaccine. I think if you listen to everyone we always speak about when the vaccine comes this is what will happen. We are expecting to, to regain our a bit of normality and, and I think it, it all has been anchored around the emergence of the vaccine so which is why there is such a positive response around what has been reported thus far. I think it's important for us to also maybe just unpack a bit what has been reported. So these are phase one trials. It's human trials, phase one. So it means the patient numbers are still relatively small and there's still a long way for us to go before we can get to a point where we've got commercially available vaccines that can be accessible to everybody else. So uh, I think the report, as you would have seen, reports some positive outcomes, promising outcomes on only eight patients. So we know that we'll need significant numbers of patients to be tested before we can get to a place where we can say we've got a vaccine that is safe and efficacious. But it is important maybe to unpack further though what uh, promising results are, are showing. We are seeing that the response, the antibody response, specifically neutralizing antibodies that are aimed at killing the virus, have been observed in those patients and they have been likened to what is seen to those people who have actually recovered from COVID-19. What still needs to be shown, though, is obviously the duration of that immunity that may be conferred by those antibodies. It's early days. It's important for us to just highlight that it is early days. But any bit of positive news towards the right direction is welcome. And it creates promise even to the many other companies that are working on vaccine trials and are hoping to actually find some breakthrough as part of the trials that they are running at the present moment.
0: It's an interesting point you make there. There were patients that were involved in this. They talk, Moderna talk, of now doing a trial with 600. Is that the way it usually works?
1: Yes. If you look at the the phase one trials, it's usually a handful of patients. Remember, they didn't actually do the trial on only eight patients. But I think they have, they have results for the eight. They've actually done also some other mice studies where they've looked at the response of the virus when they administered the vaccine. They looked at the lungs of the mice and they saw some positive response even there. But in terms of the human trials, the response that they've seen is only in these eight patients. But the numbers were I think more than that I they could have looked at about forty five patients, but then the results that they were able to report on were these eight patients. It's really the nature of the clinical uh, trial phases where in the smaller phases, you also want to test the amount that you need to be giving to these patients to actually get the response. So the dosing is also something that is tested early on so that you know which dose you can then administer. When you then expand your trials to be bigger trials, you move to phase two. And by the time you get to thousands of patients in your phase three trials, you would have at least known what doses work best what side effects you are expecting to get uh, once you administer the vaccine. And I think they did report also on some of the side effects that they observed in those patients. And also they have been testing the various doses. And there is a more reliance or maybe more move towards that there is the smaller dose to achieve the same outcome without actually using the higher doses that may elicit some side effects that may be unwanted. In the early stages is really testing all those issues around the dosing, adequate dosing, and also looking at the side effect profile of the vaccine to ensure safety and efficacy in the long term.
0: We had an interview with Professor Adrian Hill uh, just over a month ago from Oxford University. They've been supported by the British government, and they're also doing trials. We haven't heard anything positive from them yet, though. So this, this is really the very first successful bit of news from one of the vaccine makers. How many other companies or how many other organizations are trying to do the same thing?
1: It's a relatively long list of companies maybe close to 10 or more. There's been quite a lot of activity around this space. This vaccine development. There's also a lot of activity around finding treatments for COVID-19. Those are two main areas of focus right now to say if we're going to expect the vaccine to be available maybe by next year, what else can we be doing in the meantime to reduce The fatalities that could be related to COVID-19. But in terms of vaccine trials, uh, it's quite a, a number of other companies that are busy with these trials. It's a lot of activity right now. Early on, there was a company also in Israel that did announce their success in the labs in terms of formulating a vaccine that they felt would be beneficial. So I think everybody now is going to be embarking on human trials. Any positive responses, I'm sure people are going to be sharing with the media to create at least some positive move, bringing a bit of hope to those who are at the forefront of fighting with this virus. Even for us as the broader public, wanting to to know that there is some activity taking place with vaccine development.
0: No, Lu- Names like remdesivir and chloroquine have been mentioned very often. The one seems to be quite positive, the other not so much. Can you bring us up to date with those medications and and what does seem to be working?
1: There are quite a few. Maybe I'll just mention some of the drugs that have been actually listed as some promising agents early on and also they are in clinical trials at present. So you are... Talking about hydrochloro, uh, hydrochloroquine, which obviously is known as a drug that has been used uh, in, in the treatment of malaria. So most of the drugs that are currently being tested are we call them repurposed drugs because they've been registered for other indications before and are now being tested in the treatment of COVID. So hydrochloroquine has been in the early days touted as one of the drugs with the most promise. Which is why we always caution because it will be based on a small number of cases and then the reports are out there and then people get this uh, false sense of hope that proper trials have been done and therefore this is a drug that could be in the mainstream. But we do know that there have been results that have not actually lived up to the expectations. There's been caution more around the side effect profile of the drug. that reported more toxicities rather than the benefits. Then there, is, there are other antiretrovirals. I'll leave Remdesivir for last. Um, so there are other antiretroviral agents like Lopinavir, Retonavir that have been used in the management of HIV. They are also in trials. By some early reports in some other parts of Asia have not really shown any promise, but I think they are still in the basket of drugs that are being tested right now. We also know of a drug, Toculuzumab, also marketed as Actemra. It is also a drug that has been used as an anti-inflammatory for some of the autoimmune conditions. It is also still trials out and has also been reported to show some benefit. Hydrochloroquine has been used in combination with, for example, antibiotics like azithromycin. If you look at some of the clinical protocols in some of the hospitals, they still include some of these agents in their basket of of items that they are trialing out in some of these patients who are presenting with severe disease. And then Remdesivir, uh, which is a Gilead product, we all saw some of the early reports in the U.S. and also the FDA granting it some emergency use access. I think even that has not been fully approved, but because of some promising results, it has been allowed to start using it in the defined population of patients in hospital. We also know that even with remdesivir, there was another trial that was done in China where it it didn't really show the same results that the U.S. trial showed. It's really a lot of activity to try. Like I said, um, there's work being done in the vaccine space, but there's also a lot of work being done to find treatments that are effective in the management of patients with COVID-19. It's always important to make sure that in the absence of a vaccine, at least we can minimize the mortality and morbidity that the disease brings, specifically when we look at the vulnerable uh, populations, our elderly patients and patients with underlying chronic uh, conditions. There is that activity and we remain hopeful uh, we will eventually find Effective treatments that are going to assist
2: patients in the fight against COVID-19.
3: Inside COVID-19 from Business.
2: The Democratic Alliance is taking the government to court for what they call the irrationality of the lockdown. And in a separate case, they are challenging whether the Disaster Management Act is constitutional. In a business webinar, DA leader John Stiernesen said they wanted the national lockdown to end. Stiernesen also called on President Cyril Ramaphosa to grasp destiny and said the DA would support Ramaphosa if he brings reforms that the economy needed to promote growth to Parliament.
4: We've been very constructive since the beginning of this the process. You know, we supported the president in the hard lockdown, but the divergence started uh, when you know we realised that uh, the extending the hard lockdown was going to have dire economic consequences, and that there was actually a twin threat to lives in South Africa of one, the spread of the virus, but two, uh, the effects of a grinding economic depression. Uh, on many many South Africans, and that we warned at the time and it was a very unpopular thing to do, if you remember that the collective uh, outrage that met the statement when we said it 's going to destroy the economy. but now I think you battle to open a newspaper or uh, any publication it 's not talking about the dual threat uh, to lives in South Africa of the virus and an economic collapse. The
0: thing that I think confuses most of us who are on the outside, not not on the inner portals of power, is some of the strange decisions that have been taken. For instance, you're only allowed to exercise from six to nine. For instance, we've seen the numbers. In fact, we had it in our flash briefing this morning that nine out of ten smokers are getting their cigarettes. They're just buying it illegally. So the state's losing uh, on excise duty and criminals are are being given an opportunity to, to get a foothold in this market. How do you perhaps get some sense into a government which according to the Nobel Prize winner uh, that we've been talking to, Professor Michael Levitt, the South African, uh, says that they are doing these kind of crazy things just because they can. In other words, they, they're showing you that they are, that the regime is powerful. How do you as the leader of the opposition write this?
4: Well, what we did is from the beginning, you know, we made a number of suggestions. First of all, we put forward a blue book, uh, which was a a ministry by ministry approach to what needed to be done to fight the virus. And then obviously we, we, uh, released our smart lockdown model, uh, which we thought was, was the right way to go. And certainly our next level, uh, had a much wider opening up of the economy. Uh, but I think you, I think that the analysis is probably right. I think that there's a lot of autocratic and technocratic, uh, and bureaucratic behavior that is seeped in that has actually got nothing to do with fighting the virus. Now any regulation, should be, it uh, should be measured against its efficacy in fighting the virus. Many of these regulations, the military curfew, uh, the limits on exercise. In fact, uh, I think it's actually counterproductive because you're basically getting every South African out onto the streets, uh, at the same time when, you know, and forcing people to congregate. And then Becky Claylee moans that, you know, there's that the Seapoint Promenade or other areas are too congested. But what do you do? You get, you know, three hours where everybody's out on the streets. The ridiculous diktat that came out last week about what clothes you can buy and how you must wear them—you uh, know—the the ban on cooked food, the ban on e-commerce. You know, we've made submissions to government; they haven't listened. And so we've now, as you probably know, um, are going to court. Um, we, our papers were lodged last week. We're going to uh, challenge uh, the e—well, the e-commerce has fallen away now because government did a U-turn on it. But the military curfew and the exercise. And then we've got a a direct approach to the Constitutional Court on the constitutionality of the Disaster Management Act, which is allowing the NCC to basically make laws, make regulations with absolutely no oversight uh, from any elected public representative in South Africa. Now, we have a executive arm in South Africa and we've got a legislative arm. The executive is the cabinet and the legislature is parliament and parliament has just been left completely out. Uh, of these processes, and that's why you, you're not, you know, you, you've seen these ministers behaving like tin-pot dictators in, you know, in, in, in a totalitarian society. We're a democracy, and uh, our democratic processes must be allowed to continue.
0: John, just unpack that for us, because that really goes to the, the, the heart of what's aggravating many South Africans. Uh, there is a lockdown which has been imposed on the country by this, as you say, the executive branch. Um, is it are you, are you wanting to prove that it's illegal or are you wanting to prove that the process of the lockdown was illegal?
4: No, I think that what we want to do is, is to fix the loophole that currently exists where there's absolutely no oversight of what the NCC is allowed to do. The, the National Command Council it was, that was established, uh, they, that's where all these rules and regulations are, are coming from. Uh, they are using the Disaster Management Act to, to argue that they will you know, they're empowered to make laws and regulations. Uh, we believe there's a massive gap in this because even in the State of Emergency Act, there is a provision there for parliamentary oversight. You have to go back to Parliament uh, when you want to extend. There has to be a process that Parliament exercises oversight. In the Disaster Management Act, there's no provision whatsoever for uh, oversight. And we saw in the letter that Cassius Labisi wrote back to that group of advocates Uh, where he argued that, no, no, there is oversight. The NCC is, you know, looked, uh, is oversighted by the cabinet. Now, you can't have an executive organ of state exercising oversight over itself. It's fundamentally unconstitutional. It goes to the heart of the separation of powers debate. And I, I still maintain that if many of these regulations had an opportunity for parliament to have a say, I think we could have stopped some of the lunacy that's going on. The cigarette and alcohol ban. Government is losing Billions of rands every month in revenues, at a time when we need that money to you know, help pay for the medical response, but also to help us try and keep our economy afloat, which looks increasingly unlikely. And here you're essentially saying to the mafia, um, you know, here we go, it's all your money. And to try and then get legal compliance again afterwards, after you've let this network run amok for, for, uh, for months, is just simply not going to happen.
0: John. Uh how are you reading this? Where are we going to from here? Because already there's been enormous damage. Uh, Business for South Africa says uh, uh, the economy will contract 17% this year. Uh, if you take our recent growth rates, that's going to take a decade to just get back to where we were before COVID-19. How are you seeing things move out or, or play out from here?
4: Well, look, I, I, think, I think that the consensus is that we, the real battle is still to come. The, as I said earlier, the virus – is the hill, the economy is the mountain. And it's going to be a very, very steep mountain and it's going to be a lot of pain. For the first time, I think that we've been in technical recession for the last six years. GDP growth has been surpassed by population growth. But that's by and large being uh, that recession's been uh, borne by the poor in South Africa. This depression that we're going to go into is going to wash very deeply into the middle class. And people you and I know, people our kids are at school with, are going to lose their jobs, they're going to lose their businesses, and they're going to lose their homes and their cars. And it's, it's going to wash very, very deeply into the middle class. And I think that's going to have a, an absolute impact on, uh, on South Africa going forward. So I think there's a lot of pain to come. And, uh, you know, we need to, that's why we need to be now reoriented the party towards owning the recovery and putting on the table a, a blueprint. My worry is, and certainly it's it's the sound that you're hearing from government, is well let's just double down on the policies that got us into this mess in the first place. So you're talking now about you know COVID's dealt finally with your SAA problem but now we're talking about starting up a new state-owned airline out of the ashes of SAA and we're not going to solve the problem that got us into this mess and not and get us out of this but the very same paradigm of state control that got us into this mess Uh, and so the more the state tries to own and direct the economy the more it's actually going to wreck it. So, I really, <laughs> that's what worries me the most about about what's going to happen, uh, you know, when we stop dealing with the economic crisis, that government's going to say, well, just what would, the answer to the problem is just a little bit more state control, a little bit more uh, a monopoly for for the state, a few more ESKIMs and, and the like, and it is the wrong medicine for the crisis that we're in. This is an opportunity for us to reset uh, and to start adopting pro-growth policies that are able to get us off this low growth, high debt trajectory and high unemployment trajectory and onto one where we can actually get the economy growing again. And I think the president, if he you know, grasps the moment, he will be able to make this the turning point for South Africa. Uh, and so he's got a date with destiny and he's going to have to think very carefully about does he continue to pander to the RET faction or is he going to do what needs to be done and bring those reforms to Parliament, table them and let's get the country back on track and working again. And he'll have no bigger cheerleader or partner in growth than, than us on the opposition benches. We will help him ram through that agenda if it needs to be through Parliament. Uh, but he's now got to have the courage to bring it uh, to the table and to stop pandering to the forces that have brought the country to its knees.
3: Inside COVID-19,
4: from Biz News.
0: Professor Koordin van Welbeek is with the University of Cape Town. He's the director of the research unit of the economics of excisable products. Now, that's to do with uh, booze and snacks, SINs, I suppose, and taxes. Is that right, Prof?
3: Correct. It's everything to do with tobacco, with alcohol, and most recently also with sugar sweetened beverages.
0: And you've really been shaking things up, as far as many people are concerned, with the research into Cigarettes, which have now been banned for eight weeks, and the presumption is that smokers would stop smoking. The reality is very
3: different. Absolutely. So we are a research unit that focuses primarily on public health. So our uh, starting point is public health, and we want to support public health. Uh, And often our research puts us into conflict with the tobacco industry because of course, uh, public health and industry, Positions are quite diametrically opposed to each other. Uh, but we looked into this particular issue because we thought it was interesting. And we heard so many stories and rumors and anecdotes about how um, people have been able to get illicit cigarettes on the street, that illicit traders become uh, completely out of control and so on. And on the basis of that, we actually then did this particular survey of approximately 16,000 people.
0: 16,000. How did you contact them?
3: Okay, so what, the way that we went about it is we uh, put an online survey onto SurveyMonkey. Uh, we used our own uh, um, social media platforms, and we used two other uh, platforms. The one is Moya, which is a data-free platform, and specifically at uh, people of lower socioeconomic groups. And another one, we latched it onto a survey that was done through change.org. And the results? Very interesting. Uh, we found uh, a lot of people being able to smoke uh, and being able to find cigarettes during this time period and being able to purchase cigarettes during this time period. We also started off asking people, did you quit? And approximately 40% of people indicated that they attempted to quit. And of those 40% that attempted to quit, we found that approximately 40% were successful. So in other words, about 16% of smokers have at least during this lockdown period been uh, successful at quitting. And I think we need to celebrate that, and that is cause for, um, for happiness in public health cir- uh, circles. However, of the 84% of smokers that did not quit, uh, and that we subsequently asked them a whole lot of questions about how was their experience during uh, the lockdown, we see that approximately 90% of them have been able to purchase cigarettes. Uh, we also see a very significant change in the market structure. Before the lockdown, uh, the multinational corporations, British American Tobacco, Japan Tobacco, etc., their market share was in the order of about 80%. After the lockdown, we see that approximately uh, the local manufacturers increased their market share from approximately 20% to more than 65%. So a massive change in the, um, uh, the whole market structure. We also see that the market structure changed in terms of the retail outlets. Whereas previously we had lots of people uh, buying cigarettes through um, formal retail outlets, as you would expect. Uh, we see that spaza shops have become more and more important, house shops, and also uh, outlets that previously have not existed before. Specifically, uh, online platforms, WhatsApp groups, and many people quite openly and honestly indicated that they were buying cigarettes from uh, drug dealers, from uh, illicit traders, from black market operators. Et so uh, we see that the market has become very much more informal uh, as opposed to the pre-lockdown period.
0: I'm, I'm a bit confused here. So the local cigarette manufacturers have grown their market share, but surely they're not supposed to be supplying the market.
3: Exactly. Uh, and that's uh, the point. So when I talk about local uh, manufacturers, I exclude British American tobacco because they, even though they are manufacturing locally, they are uh, classified as a multinational. So when I talk about local manufacturers, I talk mainly about the manufacturers that are associated with the Free Trade Independent Tobacco Association. Um, uh, some of the names that uh, are well known uh, in this these circles are Goldleaf Tobacco, Amalgamated Tobacco Company, Best Tobacco Company, Conalinks, Uh And these companies have been uh, coming to the fore over the past 10 to 15 years. Uh, and they have really used this particular uh, lockdown period to greatly expand their market. Uh, the question is, how did these cigarettes enter into the market? Uh, and, and that's the question that sadly we cannot answer. Have they been manufactured during the lockdown? Were they leaked into the market? Uh, because they were already uh, released from bonded warehouses. Uh, that we cannot say because um, uh, our questions simply did not go uh, in that direction.
0: Professor Van Welbeek, how much is the state losing on excise duties?
3: So the government uh, last year uh, obtained approximately 14 billion rands for the year, for the financial year. And in the current year, they're expecting a similar uh, uh quantity of money to be collected in the form of excise duties. That's approximately 1.2 billion rands per month. That's a huge amount of money for you and me and for anybody. Uh, But one has to look at it in context. So it's approximately 1% of total government revenue comes from excise taxes on tobacco products. So 1% is 1%. Uh, It's a lot for some and little for others. Uh, But one can safely assume that during this lockdown period, approximately 1.2 uh, 1.2 uh, billion rand of revenues would have been lost. Of course, it would be interesting to see that if these cigarettes that have actually entered into the market came from bonded warehouses and have been released before uh, the um, lockdown became effective and they've sort of been uh, leaked into the market, but the excise tax has been paid. That is potentially possible, and one needs to uh, think about that as an op- uh, as, as, um a possibility at the same time though uh many of these companies have had a record uh in the past of dodging taxes of being uh, in trouble with South African revenue services because they have not been paying taxes and with that i'm actually including all tobacco companies the tobacco industry uh i've studied them for many many years is a uh, a very dirty industry all industries i think have got uh, skeletons in the closets in their closets, but I think the tobacco industry more so than most other industries.
0: What's concerning a lot of people, and uh, including Paul O'Sullivan, who we spoke to on a webinar last week, is that a number of these local tobacco companies actually funded politicians quite openly and quite, quite well known. If you join the dots, as Paul says, it doesn't add up to a very nice picture.
3: Absolutely. Um, And so some of these uh, uh, links with politicians are very well explained in um, Jacques Poe's book, as well as in Johan von Lachenberg's book Tobacco Wars, uh, and so on. Uh, Of course, a um, a politician's son is very much involved with amalgamated tobacco, uh, and that I think is very well known as well.
0: So as a public, as South Africans, we're now looking at this and shaking our heads because the the people who smoke are still smoking. Uh, they're still buying cigarettes, but we as taxpayers are not going to have to put more money in because the excise duties are not being collected or almost certainly not being collected. Is there a, a, a new underground group of of uh, of suppliers that have emerged? In other words, criminals, is the criminal element moving in?
3: Uh, I can only speculate on that. Uh, So what we've done in uh, the research unit that I lead uh, is over the past two or three years we've investigated the illicit market in South Africa in substantial detail and uh, we've come to the very strong conclusion that since 2010, there's been a very significant increase in illicit trade in South Africa. Before 2010, the tobacco industry made a bit of a fuss about it, especially British American Tobacco and the Tobacco Institute, uh, but there wasn't much evidence for it. However, since 2010, there has been a very significant increase in illicit trade, and since 2014, even more so. And especially under the Moyana years at SARS, uh, it was fair game for anybody to enter the illicit market in in cigarettes. And Uh, By 2017, 2018, we estimate that the illicit market was as high as 30% or possibly even as high as 35% of the total market. That was a real problem. Last year, uh, the indications are that SARS has been able to turn it around, not fully, but partially. And we believe that the illicit market has probably decreased by anything between 6 and 10%. So what's happening now is that this is a real, uh, I would regard it as a tragedy. Uh, because the gains that SARS have been making over the past year under our new commissioner, uh, m- much of that has been uh, turned around. We see that illicit trade groupings have become more entrenched, uh, marketing and distribution channels have become uh, more entrenched into the market, and it's going to be very difficult for SARS to be able to break into those new networks, uh, turn them around, and actually put uh, a cap on illicit trade even in normal circumstances without a ban on the sale of cigarettes.
0: After the release of your report, there certainly has been quite a lot of publicity around it. Have you been contacted by SARS, by government, by anybody who should be paying attention?
3: At this moment in time, not. Uh, So I know that uh, some People within the tobacco industry, they're looking at this and say this is the evidence that we have been looking for and um, they, they've been very impressed by the research that we've done. We're not here to impress anybody. Uh, we are here to do research and to uh, to look for the facts. Uh, people in the tobacco control community might look at this and say, well, we don't really need that type of evidence because we like the lockdown because we want actually people to quit smoking. Uh, and I think even in this very, very strict lockdown where cigarettes are becoming very, very expensive, uh, we f- are finding that there are going to be some people who are going to quit. So uh, the benefit of the lockdown is that some people will continue or will be forced to quit cold turkey uh, to some extent against their wishes. Uh, but I think that the cost to society in terms of the loss of revenue for the state and specifically also the entrenchment of um, these illicit networks, this this is a real problem. And we might be paying for this for very many years to come. And it's going to be a real problem for the illicit economy unit at SARS to try and turn around what uh, has happened over the past number of weeks. Inside COVID-19, from Biz News.
2: Hope is growing that a vaccine would soon be found for COVID-19. There are currently a 100 vaccines in development, of which 8 have started testing in humans. Today, Moderna, a biotech company in Cambridge, Massachusetts in the United States, announced positive interim results for its human trials with a vaccine called mRNA, which produced COVID-19 antibodies in all 45 participants. At day 43, following a second dose, the levels of antibodies in the group who received 25 micrograms of the vaccine were at the same level as people who have recovered from the disease. Shares in Moderna rose by 17% following the announcement. Meanwhile, the British government has announced that the vaccine developed by the Jenner Institute of Oxford University will be rolled out in the United Kingdom first. This vaccine is already being produced in large quantities by AstraZeneca. The UK Business Secretary Alok Sharma said the UK Oxford vaccine could be rolled out by September to 30 million Brits
5: in order to definitively conquer this disease, we need to find a safe, workable vaccine. I'm very proud of how quickly our scientists and researchers have come together in their efforts to develop a vaccine that will combat coronavirus. Their work has meant that two of the world's front-runners to develop a vaccine are right here in the UK, at the University of Oxford and Imperial College London. The first clinical trial of the Oxford vaccine is progressing well with all phase one participants having received their vaccine dose on schedule earlier this week. They're now being monitored closely by the clinical trial team. The speed at which Oxford University has designed and organized these complex trials is genuinely unprecedented. Imperial College are also making good progress and we will be looking to move into clinical trials by mid June with larger-scale trials planned to begin in October. So far, the government has invested 47 million pounds in the Oxford and Imperial vaccine programs. But today, I can announce an additional 84 million pounds of new government funding to help accelerate their work. This new money will help mass-produce the Oxford vaccine so that if current trials are successful, we have dosages to start vaccinating the UK population straight away. The funding will also allow Imperial to launch phase three clinical trials for his vaccine later this year. I can also confirm that with government support Oxford University has finalised a global licensing agreement with AstraZeneca for the commercialisation and manufacturing of the Oxford vaccine. This means that if the vaccine is successful AstraZeneca will work to make 30 million doses available by September for the UK as part of an agreement at over 100 million doses in total. The UK will be first to get access and we can also ensure that in addition to supporting people here in the UK we're able to make the vaccine available to developing countries at the lowest possible cost. To further support our domestic manufacturing capability, last month I announced that the Government will accelerate building the UK's first Vaccines Manufacturing Innovation Centre, which is based at Harwell in Oxfordshire. And today I can announce that we will invest up to a further £93 million in the Centre, ensuring that it opens in summer 2021, a full 12 months ahead of schedule. The centre which is already under construction will have capacity to produce enough vaccine doses to serve the entire UK population in as little as six months. But if, and it is a big if, a successful vaccine is available later this year, we will need to be in a position to manufacture it at scale and quickly. So whilst the centre is being built, the government will establish a rapid deployment facility thanks to a further investment of 38 million pounds to begin coronavirus vaccine manufacturing at scale from this summer. This facility will support efforts to ensure a vaccine is widely available for the UK public as soon as possible. In total, the government has now committed over a quarter of a billion pounds towards developing a vaccine in the UK. But there are no certainties. In spite of the tireless efforts of our scientists it is possible that we may never find a successful coronavirus vaccine inside covid-19 from biznews Grace
0: Harding is the chief executive of Ocean Basket. She's also the spokesperson for the Restaurant Collective. Grace, we've seen a lot of businesses under enormous strain during the last eight weeks of the very strict lockdown. I heard today, incidentally, that if it carries on for another week, it'll be the longest anywhere in the world in its severity, even worse than Wuhan, which is quite interesting. Restaurants must be under, well, you haven't been open or certainly not for sit-downs.
6: No. So recently they have obviously allowed delivery and some of our restaurants and other restaurants have attempted delivery. I think for the very small one man band restaurants, they've got a very dedicated clientele. They're making some money, but we're a sit down restaurant and we never want to be anything else. We know that people do want together. We're social beings and we really need to stick to doing that in a really safe way.
0: So what happens now? Last time we spoke, some weeks ago, you obviously weren't open then. It's eight weeks on, things are presumably a lot tougher.
6: It's getting worse and worse, and it truly is catastrophic to the restaurant industry and to the ecosystem of the restaurant industry. So not only are there the employees who each feed an average of six to seven people, then there's the green grocer, the man who supplies the meat. So many restaurants are really tiny, tiny businesses, and it's absolutely catastrophic. And some of the landlords have really been helpful. We're still trying to chat to others because never mind what's happening now. When we go back, we aren't going to go back with a bang and go back to making the money we were. So many of our customers have been retrenched. So it's this unknown. So now we almost like in ICU on a ventilator. Deliveries has been like a bit of high care, but we haven't managed to feed ourselves yet. And opening is going to be occupational therapy.
0: How are you going to adapt to the new world? Or how are sit-down restaurants going to adapt to the new world?
6: How long is this going to be around? For the other day, I was wondering, how are we all going to go out for dinner and wear masks? Like, are we going to cut slits in them or something? What I can say is we've gotten together and we've put together a really good COVID-safe protocol, we realise that the government is nervous and we do respect that. We don't know if we're more nervous about COVID or more nervous about just dying and shutting down. So we've put it together. We're going to submit it to the government. We've got two associations who are helping us and we want them to approve it and then we're going to take it on board to also offer mass Zoom training to restaurant managers. So we want the government to know we will do everything that we can to make sure that the restaurant is a safe place for the staff and for the customer.
0: When you say we, how many restaurants are involved in this?
6: The Numbers of restaurants is about just under 500. Obviously, Ocean Basket has got quite a few, and then we've got many of the other groups who've also offered help. And what's great is it's not just people joining a thing. It's people giving advice that we've been sharing all our COVID protocol to put together one consolidated one. We get calls from one-man bands to ask for help. So most of the other brands are part of it, not all. And very exciting is one-man bands and then people like Shwani Tourism Association, who have restaurants as part of them, have also asked us to come and help their restaurants. So we're doing the work anyway. We have the training team anyway at Ocean Basket, for example. We are so happy to train other managers and make sure that the whole industry is safe. And that's the immediate need.
0: How are your restaurants working now? Clearly, they're not taking bookings. You don't have dinners. What percentage of staff would be there to help with the takeaways?
6: So at the moment, I only know Ocean Basket. We've only got about 25 restaurants open. And if you think about it, it's really only the back-of-house staff. So out of 25, 30 people, no more than about eight so what we want to do is we want to hold on to as many people as we can. It will be devastating. There are going to be restaurants that are going to close. But we're working hard with the entire ecosystem to make sure that when they open, they can at least limp along for a while. We're all going to limp for a while, and we need everybody's support.
0: Grace, that's 25 out of 152 restaurants that are open.
6: Not even making sufficient money. I mean, in normal trading times, deliveries – is less than 10% of our income.
0: And how many people are affected directly or indirectly by restaurants being closed in this way?
6: So you see, the one thing that the sit-down restaurants don't have a lot of yet in South Africa is data. But we assume there's about 7,000 restaurants in total in the country. And if we take an average of 20 staff, because some restaurants are really big and some are smaller, so 7,000 times 20... 140,000 people, then times seven people that each employee feeds. So we're getting to a million now. And we've left out the ecosystem. So someone who makes sauces for the restaurant, who delivers beautiful cakes or fruit salads. So when we keep on adding it, it's going to get to over two million people easily.
0: Are you finding that the government support systems are helping the UIF, for instance?
6: Inconsistently. So some of our restaurants have been paid. I know there's a webinar tomorrow with the marketing person from the UIF that someone's hosting. It's inconsistent. So is it effective? Out of 10, it's probably between a four and a five. And many of us have had to step in and help our crew.
0: And what about landlords?
6: There's been a mixed bag of responses. We see that an organization's been set up, PIG property investment group. So we're still going to chat to them. But mixed responses. I mean, some landlords completely understand and other landlords are saying things like, okay, so we'll give it to you for free, but we'll hold on to it and you can pay us back later. And we just need to massage that because when is later? We can't pay you back in December because by then we've gone from occupational therapy to now physiotherapy. So we're not walking yet. So there's a few of those nuances and at the same time, I have a lot of empathy for them. We're all struggling. I really believe, and I've been saying it over and over again, we'll find a solution if we just sit together and not do this email letter sending stuff. What about
0: the banks? Many of the franchisees are funded by the major banks. Have they come to the party?
6: Once again, different banks, different responses. Of course, in the main, they certainly do understand that big loans can't be paid back. But we want to try and work with them for more support. As I keep on saying, obviously we are all focused on right now, but we also have to focus on how we open. Can we perhaps talk about a reduced credit card fee for a while? So the ethos is let's walk together. When we all have a little, we share it. When we all have a little bit more, we'll share that too. But overall, the responses from bankers and banks is supportive and at the same time, there's no sort of overall law in the country that says, "Okay guys, this is how we're going to come together and create support." So, we've got to find that support alone, and I know that tours and all of those things are really, really helping. I just don't know when the money's going to run out because it's not a bottomless bucket.
0: When are you going to be allowed to reopen restaurants? At what level? At We're now moment, going towards level three, apparently.
6: Yeah. At the moment, they say level one. But Alec, it can't happen at level one. With a, a hand on my heart, we will not make it. We really will not make it. The big brands, of course, you know, we've got a little bit more backing. And Ocean Basket, for example, is a big brand. But we have to think about the whole industry now. We have to support each other And if they wait till level one, which is currently I think September, we're just not gonna make it. There's just no money coming into these businesses at
2: all. Zero.
3: Inside COVID nineteen from Business.
2: While the race is on for a vaccine that would bring great relief for governments and citizens all over the world, there are many laboratories working on cures and treatments for the novel coronavirus. The drug that appears to be leading this race is Remdesivir from Gilead Sciences, which has been approved for emergency use in the United States of America. The Wall Street Journal has suggested that this drug could have been administered to British Prime Minister Boris Johnson when he was gravely ill with the virus. Through the intervention of U.S. President Donald Trump, Gilead Sciences had been in touch with St. Thomas's Hospital in London at the time when Johnson was in their care. But the hospital has not confirmed whether he did receive the drug, as that would be awkward as the British Prime Minister could not be seen to be getting a drug not available to all Britons. Joseph Walker from the Wall Street Journal reports that researchers are now looking at a cocktail of drugs, including remdesivir, for the treatment of COVID-19.
7: One of the things that we might see results in nearest term is trying to combine remdesivir with other types of treatments out there, particularly these like anti-inflammatory drugs. A few of them are already approved for things like rheumatoid arthritis. And the idea is that, so remdesivir is an antiviral, right? So its purpose is to stop the virus from replicating inside of your body. But the other thing that this virus does that people have observed is that it triggers this overactive immune response, which ends up sort of hurting the person worse, maybe even than the virus after a certain point. And so all this is to say that if you can combine remdesivir to help kill the virus, and then combine that with a, um, an anti-inflammatory that will tamp down the immune response that, that is causing people so much trouble that you could sort of attack the disease on these two fronts and thereby get a synergistic effect perhaps. Remdesivir is administered intravenously in the hospital, so it's not a pill, it's not just an injection that you can take at home. And so inherently it's limited to people in the hospital. And so what Gilead is doing is looking at new formulations of the drug where people might be able to inhale it or just be able to inject it themselves right into their skin, not through an IV infusion. And those are both methods where people could actually take the drug at home. And so if those formulations work out, then you could see the drug tested in people that are not quite as sick. And that would, if the drug proves effective there, it would really expand its use outside of the hospital. What we think is gonna happen is that supplies permitting that remdesivir will become sort of a standard of care among these hospitalized patients who are very sick. So essentially, you know, all patients will start getting the drug at some point when there is enough supply, and then we'll just start to see all those trials that are testing these other new drugs then used in combination with remdesivir, de facto by default almost. Inside COVID-19 from BizNews
2: nations across the world including south africa are reopening their economies there is the worry that a second wave of infections could occur which could prompt governments to reintroduce lockdowns what governments do not agree on is whether the reopening of schools could trigger a second surge of cases the wall street journal's jason douglas told anne-marie fatoli that most experts agree a second wave is likely
8: they say it's pretty likely, if not inevitable, as you ease these restrictions that we've all been living under for so long. Uh, the simple fact is that the, the virus gets more chance to replicate, and to and to sort of an infections uh, will almost certainly rise. So it seems very likely. The, the the big question is just how severe that will be, and what everyone's trying to figure out is what are the best things to do to try and keep that keep the transmission down as we do ease these lockdowns.
5: So what do experts say about what's needed to prevent a second wave or mitigate the impact if this is something they expect?
8: The big message is kind of the oldest thing we know about epidemiology and how to stop infectious diseases, which is test, trace, and isolate. So you need to do a lot of testing. You need to find out who has the virus. You need to, if you find somebody who has it, then you need to track down everyone they've been in contact with. And you need to isolate a lot of people who may or may not be contagious just to make sure that the virus has no chance of spreading. Um, other than that, that's like the main message. A lot of things they're still trying to figure out, right? We don't know a great deal about this virus yet. It's only been around four or five months. We're learning a lot every day. So there are unanswered questions around uh, around children and how they transmit it, what role they play in transmission, around things like face masks and so on. But... The one thing we do know is that if you wash hands a lot and try and stay away from people uh, as best you can, then the, the chances of transmitting of transmission uh, are lower.
5: In the meantime, as you mentioned, this is leaving a lot of governments and policymakers with a lot of questions and tough judgment calls to make on whether or not to reopen. And, and if so, how to do that? What's the guidance there?
8: It's really not clear. and You'll notice that lots of states in the U.S. and uh, different countries in Europe are kind of taking things at a slow and cautious pace and are sometimes doing things in a different order. So kind of similar to the way that we all went into lockdown. So you'll find that some places are reopening businesses. Some places are keeping them closed. Some places are reopening schools. In other places, schools are still shut. There's a slight trial and error approach to all this. The main piece of advice from the science community and from disease experts is that you should do all this very slowly and cautiously just in case you do start to see a pick up and transmission. And then you may have to tighten things up again. That's certainly happened in some Asian economies that have sort of been through the the peak and passed it uh, as we're now approaching.
5: Are we seeing any signals in places that have already eased lockdowns that can potentially serve as a guide here on how to do it correctly?
8: So Asian economies that have had a lot of experience of respiratory illnesses like these, so China is, a, China is a big one, Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea, these are all places that a lot of people are looking to to see how to manage the next stage of the pandemic. South Korea, for example, is a very active test, trace and isolate program. They've been doing that right from the beginning, so much so that they didn't have to lock down their economy as severely as uh, we've had to in the West. I think China is, uh, although it's come under a lot of stick from the president and others, it does appear to be doing a pretty good job of keeping the numbers down and keeping the virus suppressed. There was a bit of a, an uptick in cases recently in, in Wuhan, where the original uh, center of the virus, but that appears to be under control. So yes, I mean, those kind of places, places where you're doing a lot of testing, a lot of tracing, a lot of quarantining of infected individuals, that's the kind of thing you want to emulate.
0: This has been episode 35 of Inside COVID-19. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.